This is Julian Assange. You're listening to WBAI New York. Stay strong and keep listening. Good evening, and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website. My co-host, Amba Gagarian, is away this week. You can find us online at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. I'm also excited to announce that our brand-new February print edition hit the streets across new york city today you can find it in our red and white news boxes and uh, over 60 public libraries and uh, other other public venues laundromats uh, uh, independent bookstores cafes etc and our february print edition celebrates black history month our cover story by nicholas powers is titled black love the force that changed america and the world uh, nicholas uh, is a, a professor of African American literature at, at SUNY Old Westbury and a longtime contributing uh, writer for the Independent, almost 20 years with us. And uh, uh, in a NICA, I think really knocked it out of the ballpark with his cover story this month, uh, really tying uh, black history, black literature in America, um, all of it together, uh, the, the long struggle for justice. Uh, from Fre- Frederick Douglass to to Tyree Nichols, and um, so I, th- I think you'll definitely enjoy that cover article. Also, we're going to have uh, Nick on the show next Tuesday on Valentine's Day uh, to talk more about his thoughts on black love as a historical force in America and in the world. Uh, so uh, we're really, again, really excited uh, to have that cover story from uh, Nicholas Powers. Uh, also, we have uh, some hard-hitting uh, coverage of uh, of policing and uh, and the NYPD. Uh, several articles, uh, one by uh, John Tufel, who joined us uh, last week, called "Time to Scrap the Useless Complaint uh, Civilian Complaint Review Board." Uh, uh, John used to work as an investigator there, so he uh, knows that institution from the inside out. Um, we also have an article by uh, Ted Ham called uh, "Up in Smoke: Massive Evidence, uh, a Massive Evidence Warehouse Fire Puts exoner- Exoneration Cases in Peril." Uh, as you may know, uh, there was a massive fire at a, a warehouse in Red Hook where the NYPD uh, stores uh, uh, many years of evidence, and that fire wiped that evidence out. And there are many uh, people uh, in state prison in New York. Uh, who are trying to make cases uh, for their exoneration that they were wrongfully convicted. And that evidence is perhaps now gone for many of them. So Ted uh, looks into that and also into uh, demands that uh, New York adopt much stricter laws on how it handles uh, and and stores uh, evidence uh, from old cases so that uh, people have a fair chance to appeal uh, their convictions if they end up in that situation, uh, we also have uh, uh, coverage um, of city uh, city budget cuts, its impact 
on the child, uh, on child care, on the 3K program, uh, something that uh, Mayor Adams has pursued. We look into that some more. Uh, we also have a, uh, a beautiful uh, in, a Q&A interview with a drag story uh, uh, organizer named uh, Frankie Descola. I think you'll enjoy, enjoy uh, meeting her. And we also have some really in-depth coverage uh, emanating from last week's uh, um, encampment outside the Watson Hotel on 57th Street uh, by the migrants uh, who are seeking a stable shelter here in New York. Uh, that piece uh, was jointly done by uh, the Indies, Derek Ludovici and Amber Gagarian, who helped. She's been covering that and following that story closely uh, since last summer. She's, as some of you, as many of you may know, is on an extended visit to uh, her family in Egypt, but she helped out with that story. Um, so I think if you really want to understand sort of the whole arc of how the uh, migrants ended up on the sidewalk outside of the hotel and ultimately uh, were transferred uh, to the uh, 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 to Red Hook, to the Brooklyn uh, Cruise Terminal. Uh, that's a great story you'll want to read. So we have a really exciting, uh, in-depth uh, issue. Uh, we also have lots of uh, cultural coverage. Um, so uh, a little later in the show, I'm going to talk about how you can get uh, a combo subscription to the Independent and become a WBAI buddy at the same time. It's a great deal. You'll get this paper this newspaper delivered straight to your mailbox uh, every month. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, but right now I want to um, uh, pivot to an interview actually Amba did earlier today uh, with our WBAI colleague, uh, Rachel Hu. Uh, uh, and and they're, uh, they had a uh, exciting discussion about um, independent media and uh, some new forms of collaboration among independent media makers that are being uh, developed. And uh, so if, if we're ready, I think we'll go to that interview. It goes for about 18 minutes, and then uh, I'll be back after that. And in the second half of the show, we're going to be joined by Council Member Chi uh, Ose. He uh, was a Black Lives Matter uh, protest organizer in, in 2020. In 2021, he was uh, the youngest person elected to the city council at the age of 23, and he's been a, a, a leading member of the prog- progressive block on city council. So we're going to talk with him, get his thoughts on police accountability and where we go from here in the aftermath of the uh, Tyree Nichols uh, police murder and its reverberations in New York. We'll also talk about uh, the city budget that's being debated in city council, whether uh, the council is ready to resist uh, Mayor Adams' push for uh budget cuts to a lot of important uh, programs here in the city. So we look forward to that conversation. But uh, for now, we're going to go to this interview with uh, Amiga Gagarian and Rachel Hu. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. I'm Amiga Gagarian, your co-host. I'm also the associate editor of The Independent, New York's free independent newspaper for the people. I'm excited to be joined today by WBAI's very own Rachel Hu. Rachel is the co-host of Covert Action, which airs on Wednesday mornings from 9 to 10. She is also a managing editor at Breakthrough News, an independent media project that uplifts critical voices of resistance, both nationally and internationally. Breakthrough News has a recently launched program called Breakthrough Disruptors that brings together media makers and activists around the country and around the globe. 
Rachel is here to talk about that and the current state of media. Rachel, welcome back to BAI and welcome <laughs> to the Independent News Hour. I'm happy to be here with you. I'm so happy for being here. I'm glad you invited me. It's great to have you here. So let's get straight into it. Uh, talk about uh, the the new program called Breakthrough Disruptors or BT Disruptors that I am actually going to be partaking in. Very excited about this, but let's have you uh, tell the audience about it. For sure. I'm very happy that you'll be joining the program. Very excited to have you. So I want to share a little bit more about Breakthrough News. We started in 2020. We are a progressive, independent media outlet. We are primarily on social media, on YouTube. You can find our channels as well as all across various social media platforms. But as an organization, we we really started because there are five mega corporations that control all of the mainstream media. Yeah. I mean, the reality is everything that we see here digest on any level from the media. It comes directly from one place, and that place is really the mouthpiece of the millionaires and billionaires who control so much of society and absolutely do control the news with their dollars. So we really wanted to found an independent media project that could bring together activists all across the country and provide uh, a different perspective, one that you know really takes a side. I think that we oftentimes in journalism are told that journalism is neutral, it's a neutral concept, but for us, we really recognize that fundamentally we need to to be conscious that the mainstream media does take a side. It does have a side. It has a perspective and that we want to tell the side of the people and have truthful journalism about what's actually going on in the things that impact everyday working class people. So the Breakthrough Disruptors program, which is a new program we just launched in November for application, it's for anyone and everybody who's an activist, an organizer, avid news listener, whoever you might be, as well as journalists, content creators, that want to be part of that project, to be a part of a process of working with other activists, organizers, and journalists to tell news as it exists on the ground. Because we want to have eyes and ears everywhere across the country and uplift the resistance movements we know are happening. Because the mainstream media doesn't want us to get excited about how many strikes are happening across the country. They don't want to tell us the truth of the power that people hold. So we want to uplift that. And the program is about being part of a network that has the ability to to do that and doing it together. Everyone has biases. State your biases, right? That's the best (laughs) way to do it. Uh, Yeah, a lot of solidarity and everything you said. But so the program is a network of media makers and of activists and organizers coming from all these different places, all these different uh, organizations or groups or newspapers or podcasts or whatever it might be to work together. So what's the benefit of that? What's the need for that? And then also a little bit more specifically, you know, what are some some of the benefits for the participants themselves, like some of the educational stuff? Definitely. So the program, the, the benefit is really that for especially you might be that person, for those of you who are listening, who goes to protests, has a camera, wants to cover what's going on on the ground. And maybe you have a YouTube page, you have an Instagram and you're building a following, but you're really new or you're really not building the following that you want to build. Breakthrough News is a platform, cross-platform. At this point, we have almost 700,000 followers. We've only been around for three years, and we're continuing to grow. We're, we're not just a social media platform, but we're a media 
outlet. We have connections to people all across the globe in different places doing different things. And we really want to uplift the work that's happening already. If you're somebody who goes out and gets all of that footage and takes photos and is out there doing your thing, we want you to be a part of something, not to be a floating island alone, but rather bring the organizing into the media, which I think a lot of times as professional journalists, a big part of what happens in media is that you're kind of in an ivory tower or you're, you're, you're kind of set off to, to look down at movements and look as though, you know, right or, or way in. I know there's many people I can think of who are frankly just talking heads of progressive movements. They're not involved in the movement. They don't know what's going on. And not only that, that they have no responsibility to it. And so disruptors is really about merging those two things together because breakthrough was founded by activists. Myself, I've been a, an activist for the last decade working on, on struggles from anti-police brutality movements as well as anti-war efforts. And so a big part of where I'm coming from as an activist and, of course, now as a journalist is about bringing those two things together and being able to uplift the movements as they exist in real time. And as an organizer, what I'm thinking is we really need to have a, a media apparatus that's for us, that tells the stories yeah. of what's happening. And because we don't have that, because I've, you know, I've organized so many protests and people, well, you, you send out a million press releases and you only get so many calls back if you ever get a call back. Break the News wants to always be that callback. We want to be the network that's always covering what's happening as different news is impacting us all across the country. Different laws are being passed that people don't know about. I mean, if we don't bring it forward to light, it's not going to be talked about. So that's kind of the, the motivation for the program. And in terms of how it benefits people, I think it's about bringing you into a collective of people that are already doing this. We have about 27 different states involved in the program so far, and we're excited to be adding up, I think, two more states in, in the coming month. We've already got two more collectives of people in Utah as well as Vermont joining our program. But we want to get people from not only all across the country, but of course, New York City, which is the center of so many things happening. But ultimately, it's about bringing you together to be part of this network. But it's also about education because the power of this network is also that it's about peer to peer education. You're able to talk and learn from people who are all different levels of professional. I mean, we have people who are professional documentarians, producers on shows, a variety of different people who do this work, as well as people who are also people's journalists who've been doing this work on their own independently for a long time and have a lot of information to share with us. So it's an educational part of the program where we offer virtual educations. We also offer in-person educations in New York City as well as really having that peer-to-peer educational element. So in the details of the program, if you're thinking about, you've ever sat there and said, you know, I want to be a journalist. How can I help? How can I be part of this? Maybe you are always the person who's up on every single law that's being passed in, in Albany, or you're really aware of what's going on here in New York City on the city council level. We need people like that who know what's happening in their communities, who can be that eyes and ears to help amplify the struggles that are not only being a part of fighting for these changes, but even fighting against what's going on and standing up and speaking out. I think uh, an important part of this is is that some people might be wondering, well, what Breakthrough does, that sounds just like what the Independent does, you know, or that sounds just like what WBAI does. So, uh, and, and that's true. Like, uh, there's like a huge overlap in all of this kind of coverage of social movements, independent sort of free radical media. And rather than thinking, scratching your head, well, why, why should they be working together? Aren't they sort of competitors? Like, no. And that's one of the most exciting things for me about this program is 
sort of uh, saying goodbye, getting rid of this notion that journalists should be in competition with each other when really we should be working together because we are like part of the brain of society, right? You know, news media should be the discerning part of society. So why should we be in competition, you know, or individualize our, our, ourselves as journalists or entities um, when we should be uplifting each other and, and pushing for more independent media. Yeah, 90%, as you said, 90% of media is corporately owned. So this is exciting. <laughs> and it's so important to have a network and be in communication with people that are doing the same thing as you in any field, yes, in journalism, yes, in organizing, but uh, w- w- workers should be connected, whether or not they have a union in the same sector, et cetera. So, you know, we are so over connected via social media and like fake ways. And I think now is a good time for people to try and get connected in the real way. So I commend you again for doing this. Um, but you know a lot, Rachel, about sort of like the general international media scape and, and and I want you to talk a little bit about some inspiration for this network certainly I mean I think I would love to to pick up on a point you made as well talking about more about what you were saying about the competition element yeah. of journalism yeah. it's really real I mean I think that's one of the things as a journalist you're very protective of your sources because you know at the end of the day you have to sell your story I mean that's the sad reality of the landscape of journalism today you have to sell your story and it has to be clickbait if it's not clickbait if it's not going to bring in eyes editors are not interested and I think that you know we really have to be conscious in the United States as media consumers that that's what's driving the 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 information that we're getting it's mm. calculations that are being completely made based on profits and based on yeah. this idea uh, of eyeballs and, and the value of eyeballs and the value of advertising. And that's uh, not real news. Uh-huh. The point of being a journalist from a movement perspective, I mean, there's always been journalists in the movement. People might not know this, but actually I, I recently went to Vietnam. I talk about this all the time because I'm very excited about it. But Ho Chi Minh, who's a famous revolutionary who led the Vietnamese revolution, he was also a journalist. I mean, you can find yeah, absolutely. So many examples that are like that. I mean, everywhere many, that many. you look. Yeah, you can see all these different revolutionaries, all these different activists who had a background in journalism. And in the yes. Vietnam War specifically as well, the the major sacrifice that was made by thousands of Vietnamese people to cover what was going on on the front lines, it decisively changed the war. And I think that people need to think differently about the relationship of activism and journalism because every organizer who's serious about wanting to get their message out ends up writing pamphlets, ends up writing newspapers, being part of newsletters, getting the information out some way or another. And now that's social media, but historically it's guerrilla radio. Historically, I, I know people from the movement in Latin America who told me about this craziness in the 90s that they would do, where they would carry broadcasting equipment to be able to broadcast on television what was going on in the protests in Mexico. And that's an incredible kind of innovative technology that activists developed to be able to keep up with the times at the time when activists were locked out of the the media at all because of the shift Mm -hmm. to television and away from radio. So Mm -hmm. Breakthrough News kind of comes in that tradition of like in the modern era, we've shifted away from television. We've shifted away from any sort of what we've thought as where we consume media, traditional news. That's not where people get their media. They're getting it on social media. They're getting all their information on social media. That's what studies show in terms of young people people, not just Gen Z, millennials, but Gen X as well. Overwhelmingly, the shift towards getting your news primarily from social media has become, that's the wave, that's where it's gone. So break their news in that tradition as activists, becoming journalists and learning about how to reach people exactly where they are 
that's kind of how we came up with this program. So I just wanted to bring that out because I think the, the relationship of the movement to journalism, it's, it's, it's like both symbiotic and it's also, it, it, it like, there's really no sometimes separation from that. When you get into the long history of revolutions all across the world, I really think you always end up finding that almost every revolution was, was made on the backs of a newspaper. I mean, the yeah. Bolshevik revolution, the Soviet Union, historically, the Bolsheviks, what they would do whenever the um the whenever the state would try to come and take away their their printing presses is that they would dismantle the printing press and give different pieces of the machine to different people to hide all around the country because the the the, the newspaper was so important that they needed to be able to do that to continue to print that press so that's the tradition that we come out of we don't come out of this competition we don't want to give in to the profit seeking motives of journalism so i wanted to say that to also kind of segue into your question about the international inspirations i mean i, I mentioned a little bit about kind of the historical inspirations, but this is also happening now all across the world. I mean, there's incredible media projects I encourage people to look at. I know in India, there's NewsClick. They're incredible. They're just mm-hmm. a really solid reporting. They're really just solid with the reporting. The Tricontinental, um, Vijay Prashad, who's definitely a, a major component, a major part of the Tricontinental, is a part of that. And there's so many different things to look at all around the world. But specifically, we are also, we, we really looked at a model that we saw from activists in Brazil, Media Ninja, they're a great organization. They have millions of followers on Instagram and social media. You know, they started off as also a media organization that was just essentially, you know, like trying to connect with people all across the country. And eventually they grew out into a mass media network that is able to, to reach people, especially culturally on the ground in Brazil and different places. So I think that there's many contemporary examples of these types of projects and what the point of them are is, is to be able to use the power of the people because the corporate media, they have billions of dollars at their disposal. They can hire reporters that they send to fancy schools to, to put in every single city in America and still somehow get the news wrong. So like for us, it's like about well, it's maybe not an accident. Have. Yeah, but... it's not an accident. I mean, <laughs> it's it's really crazy to me. I know I feel that I really feel that. <laughs> so for us, it's it's leveraging the power that we have, right? The power that we have as people's journalists is the power of the people. Very, very well put. Um, I'll add to the list just because as some of our listeners may know who've been keeping up with the show, I'm in Egypt right now, um, visiting family, uh, very um, happy to be here and um, I'll be back live soon, but uh, you can look for, for, for independent news on Egypt. You can look at Mada Masar, which would be M-A-D-A space M-A-S-R-R. Sorry. Uh, Another good one is Middle East. I, um, yeah. So those are some, those are some examples of sort of media networks here in the Middle East, specifically in Egypt. But I also wanted to talk a little bit more about what you were saying, which is like the inherent relationship between news, uh, newspapers, historically pamphleteering and struggle, and also the, the relationship between specifically radical and independent free and, and labor presses. Um, so here, uh, in the U.S., there used to be like a flourishing labor press, which with McCarthyism essentially was like totally shut down. But in the late 1880s, that that began to flourish alongside the labor movements, right? Alongside the struggle. And between 1880 and 1940, there were like thousands of labor and radical publications circulating and just like you know, everyday neighborhoods in like all the different languages of, of the immigrants at the time of uh, working class newspapers made by working class people. 
another example is the Pacifica Foundation, which WBAI is a part of, that was founded in 1946 because conscientious objectors met at a work camp. You have the Black Panther newspaper, which was the official newspaper of the Black Panther Party and was the most widely read black newspaper from 1968 to 71 and was like totally distributed by Black Panthers, you know, young activists, members. Uh, and then you have indie, indie media, you know, which the independent is a part of BT newsroom, maybe is a later iteration of, but that was founded during the, uh, the battle of Seattle or the, the protest of at least 40,000 in Seattle in 1999 at a world trade organization meeting where protesters went to decry, uh, the, the patenting of seed rights which did not happen at the time, has happened now. And a lot of journalists, young radical journalists, wanted to go and cover it. And maybe the Wall Street Journal or the Times or whoever they were working for said, no, you can't go. And so they went on their own and then they founded Indie Media. Um, so that brings us to here now and today, which is really beautiful, I think. So with that, we should probably bring this conversation to a close. But before we do... Just uh, tell tell our listeners again how to learn more about or apply for this program that we're a part of, Breakthrough Disruption. Yeah, you can go to Breakthrough News, B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H, news, N-E-W-S, dot org, backslash disruptors, D-I-S-R-U-P-T-E-R-S. You can also just go on Breakthrough News. You'll see the banner. You can on breakthroughnews.org. You'll see the banner, or you can follow us on any social media account, at BT Newsroom to be able to find the application. You'll see it in the menu and you'll be able to access it. Either way, I think just find us, get in touch with us. And you can also email us at contact, C-O-N-T-A-C-T, at breakthroughnews.org. So many ways to get in touch, many ways to be involved. We really encourage it because we want to have as many voices and people involved in this program as we can. WBAI's very own Rachel Hu. We'll talk to you soon, and thanks for joining us at the Independent News Hour. Okay, that was the Independence on Amba Gagarian interviewing Rachel Hu earlier today. Uh, she uh, Rachel hosts uh, a covert action on WBAI on Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m. and is managing editor of Breakthrough News. We thank them for that interview, and we'll be back Uh, with more after this short break.
What are their names? Performed live by Crosby, Stills, and Nash. You are listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website. As I was mentioning earlier, we hit the streets today with our beautiful new February print edition. The cover story by Nicholas Powers is titled Black Love, The Force That Changed America and and the World. It's a beautiful lyrical essay uh, by Nick that combines uh, his knowledge of, of black history, uh, black uh, literature, uh, plus insights he's gained over the last five years become, by becoming a father uh, for the first time. And uh, so Nick will be joining us next Tuesday for a full hour discussion of his cover article and the themes in it uh, about black love as a historical force in American life. So please join us next week for that. But you don't want to miss out on this historic issue or any other issue of the independent. So we have a special deal for you tonight. Uh, if you become a WBAI sustainer for $35 per month, you will get every issue of the independent sent straight to your home and you'll get all the benefits of becoming a WBAI buddy. The phone number to call is 212-209-2950. Again, that's 212-209-2950. Or you can uh, pull out the plastic and go online to give number two WBAI dot org again that's give number two uh, give number two wbai dot org and uh, you can fill out the form on the on the website and and make your uh, contribution there again we have a special offer uh for tonight become a wbai sustainer for 35 dollars per month get every issue of the independent uh, over the next year sent straight to your home and get all the benefits of becoming a WBAI buddy. And of course, there's a one, uh, benefit that, that can't be, um, uh, put in, sent in the mail to you, but it's the, the knowledge that you're helping keep this station on the air. WBAI has been broadcasting, uh, for 63 years because of the support of listeners like yourself. This, you know, the station, uh, as we all know, has uh, gone through some financial hard times and needs to catch up on the the rent uh, for its antenna and transmitter at four times square in the middle of Manhattan, where we have that our signal beaming out across the five boroughs and beyond up into the Hudson Valley, across Long Island, down through New Jersey. That's all possible because of listeners like yourself. I became a WBAI buddy myself last year. Proud to do it. I, you know, I love doing this show with Amba and other folks from the independent. Also feels good to chip in and just help the, the station out uh, with a little bit of a contribution every month. So if you haven't done that yet, please think about becoming a WBAI uh, buddy, becoming a WBAI sustainer. Uh, right now, tonight, 212-209-2950 for $35 per month. You get every issue of the ind- independent sent to you over the next year, and all the benefits of becoming a WBAI buddy. If that's a little too much for you and you want to make a smaller contribution, we also welcome that. We know we have listeners from all uh, income levels that listen to this uh, unique radio station on the middle of the FM dial here in New York. And when you make your contributions, you help keep WBAI on the air, and you also uh, will get all these other benefits, get every issue of the independent, starting with the one with 
uh, our uh, cover story from Nicholas Powers about black love as a f- force in American life. Um, and so again, that number is 212209-2950. We're expecting to be joined shortly by uh, council member Chi uh, Ase. Uh, he was elected in 2021, youngest member of city council, elected at the age of 23. He uh, played a important role in organizing Black Lives Matter protests uh, during the George Floyd uprising here in New York City. He helped uh, organize protests in Brooklyn, and he's been uh, one of the really uh, forceful voices on city council with uh, the progressive bloc that has pushed back against uh, a lot of Mayor Adams' uh, austerity initiatives and and much more. Uh, Councilmember uh, Chi Ase, welcome to WBAI Radio. Thank you so much for having me, John. It's Chi Ose. Chi Ose. Okay. I'm glad we're squared away on that. Uh, so, uh, first of all, um, it, it's been uh, a, a couple of weeks since the, the, the really the revelations about the, the killing of uh, Tyree Nichols uh, by the five police officers in Memphis uh, came out. But your reaction to that and, and what kind of reverberations do you think it's having here in New York City? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think the first word that comes to mind is frustration, right? I think since uh, the uprisings in 2020, there was a lot of advocacy uh, across the country in terms of uh, reevaluating uh, police budgets, not only here in New York City, but across the country. Um, and those analysis uh, came to a conclusion that many of these budgets uh, were bloated. Meanwhile, we see, you know, agencies like our education system, our infrastructure systems, mental health care, uh, deeply uh, divested or deeply underfunded. Um, and that conversation uh, kind of was thrown out the window by the media, uh, by the Republican Party and by moderate Democrats. I think a lot of people during the presidential election and even during these past midterms, um, you know, were, were bamboozled by this idea that caring about police accountability um, or common sense uh, police reform and taking a deeper look at, at bloated police budgets uh, was something that uh, was radical. Um, and a lot of Democratic candidates that were running for office were um, afraid of, of doing the right thing um, and caring about police accountability or caring about uh, where our taxpayer dollars were going um, and just ignored uh, any type of accountability that should have been placed on uh, not only the NYPD, but uh, police uh, police agencies across the country. And I think because of that, you know, we've seen cases like, uh, you know, Tyree Nichols um, happen because we are turning a blind eye to uh, the police. And when we do that, um, we can sometimes see uh, their forces um, killing black and brown individuals. Right. And, and one, uh, initiative, uh, coming out of the mayor's office that has alarmed a lot of, uh, advocates, uh, for reigning in, uh, the NYPD and reigning in police power is this idea of having the police, uh, re- remove homeless people and other people from the streets if, if they think they're, uh, you know, uh, mentally ill and, and, and taking them to hospitals even against mm-hmm. their will. And there was a, a hearing at city council yesterday about this and we want to uh, go to a quick clip here uh mm-hmm. here just a little bit of the uh, testimony that was uh, given yesterday i ended up involuntarily hospitalized at bellevue 
I was placed in a room that had people screaming and yelling, and we were locked up like animals. Sending the NYPD to respond to people who are struggling with mental illness issues and already cost, has already cost New Yorkers too many lives. Uh, so, Council Member, your, your thoughts on, on, on these experiences people were describing and, and whether you agree with uh, Mayor Adams' uh, approach here? Yeah, I, I do not agree with Mayor Adams's approach. And, you know, I think my shift from being a protester to now, um, you know, being in office and having to communicate with different agencies, including, you know, the own, my own, uh, precincts, NYPD precincts here in the district, police officers, you know, do not even want to be the agency that goes out, um, to, to, to tackle the homeless problem. Um, for lack of a better word. I think uh, we need to look at, uh, you know, programs that already exist across the country, like in Portland, where there are specialized uh, mental health um, officials that are not a part of their police force um, that are trained in communicating um, and speaking to homeless populations over in Portland. You know, I think when we look at the police budget where we've seen, you know, over a hundred million dollars spent on lawsuits last year and over $360 million uh, spent on uh, overtime and then we refl- compare that to the amount of investment that we're putting into uh, mental health resources um, and individuals that can address mental health in our city. Um, I think we're extremely lacking um, any investment in, in those that are professionals um, in addressing uh, both homeless populations as well as uh, the mentally ill here in, in New York City. Yeah, so I, I do not into, agree with that plan. Okay, so yeah, I want to go into some more of these policy ideas in a minute. But uh, since you raised it, uh, can you talk a little bit more about the sort of the process of uh, or the experience of going uh, from being a, an activist on the outside to being the city council member uh, who now represents a uh, uh, New York's 36th district, uh, which encompasses uh, uh, Bedford, Stuyvesant, and, and the northern part of Crown Heights. What's that transition been like and the, and the new responsibilities you've taken on? Absolutely. Well, it's definitely been a steep learning curve. You know, I, I didn't have much experience in, in working in, in government nor politics before being in this position, but uh, this job is doable. You know, I think uh, what makes someone a good elected official is someone that uh, cares about their community um, and cares about the end results of helping someone uh, make their life just a little bit better. And I think I've been able to uh, learn how to, how to navigate many of these city agencies. Um, and I think that's been very different from, you know, being on the outside and uh, chanting on a, on a megaphone. But um, you know, my values have stayed consistent. My mission has stayed consistent. And that's, uh, you know, using the power that I have as a local elected official uh, to make the lives better of my predominantly black and brown constituency. So um, I'm still yelling on, on megaphones and, and chanting in front of, of City Hall, but I'm also, uh, you know, moving through the, 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 the city agencies that um, exist in the city um, to make a tenant's life better. Uh, while they're being harassed by their landlord um, or helping, you know, one of my seniors, uh, you know, with with trying to fix a, a crack on their sidewalk. So um, it's definitely been a, a major shift, but uh, my mission has stayed the same. And if you could just take us a, a little further into how that kind of how that happens. I mean, are, are you able to kind of pick up the, the phone and call, uh, you know, a department and say, hey, you're not picking up the trash, you know, you know, on this corner of my district or, you know, pick up your phone and call, 
you know, uh, one of the housing departments and be like, you know, you got to get this landlord to knock it off. I mean, uh, how, how do you wield the power that you have? Absolutely. I think it's just, you know, uh, being consistent, right? Communicating with uh, intergov at many of these city agencies, um, calling officials at these city agencies um, and making sure that the job gets done. You know, a lot of folks, um, you know, that I, I represent, my constituents um, will file a complaint in 311 and there will be no follow up. Right. Um, and having, I guess, more of a bully pulpit than some of the people that I, I represent, I'm able to be consistent on the cases and the complaints that they have been filing uh, through 311 or elsewhere uh, for years. You know, I think uh, you just have to be on the ball um, about the, the issues that your constituents have, um, while also uh, using your access to these city agencies um, and those that can address the certain problems that your constituents are, are dealing with. So, um, you know, I have, you know, there are a lot of great people that work for the city. Um, there are a lot of people that are dealing with problems in the city, but a lot of their problems aren't being heard. Um, and as a city council member, I, I guess I'm the middleman in terms of uh, connecting those problems to um, a city agency that can potentially get someone to their solution. And and you're not punished for disagreeing with the mayor on various policies in terms of being frozen out or? No, no, I, I have not had experience in being frozen out by the admin. You know, I think their city has a lot of, of, of you know, employees and many of these employees are, are not doing this work for the paycheck. They're doing this work because they do care about uh, people. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of these agencies that I correspond with, whether it's HRA, DOB, uh, DSNY, uh, they have a lot of great people that work uh, for these agencies and, and really don't care about the politics um, okay. of it all, but really care about uh, the work that needs to get done. Nice. And uh, so, yeah, let's talk a little bit more about y- y- your vision for how the mm-hmm. uh, NYPD and policing in New York City could be reformed in a, in a mm-hmm. healthy way and not just, uh, you know, sort of uh, as a uh, uh, just a, a sort of a throwaway a statement, but something that really would go deep into transforming policing. What what are some of the key things you you want to see happen? Absolutely. Well, well, first and foremost, uh, you know, I've been advocating for disbanding the NYPD Strategic Response Group. Um, a reason being for that is that you know the fiscal future of New York City is is not looking too bright right now. Uh, we're seeing cuts across every single agency uh, with the mayor's uh, pegs. Um, and every agency is, is at least the mayor is proposing to make a 3% cut uh, to many of these agencies. Um, the NYPD has not reached that 3% cut uh, that many of these other agencies are seeing. Um, yet there is fat to trim uh, within the police department. Um, and there are services that need to be kept within departments like Department of Education, um, like HRA, uh, you know, like DOB. Um, and when we take a look at, at what that fat is, um, an example of that is the NYPD Strategic Response Group. Um, I believe that the NYPD Strategic yeah. Response Group is a unconstitutional uh, unit within the, the NYPD. Uh, they have participated in breaking up nonviolence pro-abortion protests out of this year. They have supported um, and defended the Proud Boys, whether they've been, you know, fair evading down to them harassing those that have been advocating for Drag Queen Story Hour. Uh, we've seen a lot of violence that they've enacted against, uh, you know, nonviolent Black Lives Matter protesters during 2020. Um, I believe that the amount of money that we spend on, on this group is, is over $90 million. 
Um, and when we compare that to, again, many of the other cuts that we're seeing to crucial things that create public safety within the city, whether it is our public schools down to our public libraries, uh, we need to cut the funding um, of, of units like the Strategic Response Group in order uh, to create a safer uh, New York. Um, something else that I, I, I want to add, and I really want to applaud my colleague, Councilmember Charles Barron's bill um, on creating an elected civilian complaint review board. Um, the CCRB as it is, um, is not effective in any way. It does not wield any teeth. Uh, most of the discretion, um, of whether a complaint is followed through or not is, is, comes from the, the police commissioner. I think already in her first year, she waived over 70, um, CCRB complaints, uh, which is ridiculous, uh, when you look already at, you know, the over a hundred million dollars that have been spent. Yeah, something like um, only three police officers, uh, who were found uh, you, you know, to have uh, violated uh, their codes of conduct during the George Floyd protests right. uh, have had any sort of punishment against them. So it's like three out of 80 or, or, or we all saw the video th- during right. those protests that, that the police force was out of control. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 sh- it's shining a blind eye on what I consider common sense. You know, I don't think anyone that is wielding a gun or is, uh, a law enforcement officer uh, should have the power to, you know, abuse people of New York City without any level of accountability. And again, you know, how I started off our conversation in terms of the backlash of the Black Lives Matter movement of 2020 and how that's trickled down into, um, you know, this lack of accountability uh, or overarching lack of accountability on, on you know, policing in, in any regard um, is, you know, affecting how, uh, you know, police are not being held accountable. So um, I really am supporting my my colleague, Councilmember Charles Barron's bill. Um, you know, I think it's something that, that we need to see in this city. And then, of course, you know, this is more so out of my power, but on the state level, um, you know, we really need to repeal qualified immunity. We've seen all these elected officials, uh, you know, top-notch elected officials in, in New York State, including the governor, uh, sharing all of these messages about, you know, Tyree Nichols and whatnot. Um, but will not advocate for, um, you know, ending qualified immunity. So uh, I'm hoping that we do see that come into fruition on the state level. Um, I, I try to remain op- to be an optimist, but we'll see how uh, it goes. Right. Uh, what, what's it been like uh, working with a, a legendary figure like Charles Barron? I mean, you're the youngest member of the city council. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Charles Barron, uh, I mean, joined the Black Panther Party as mm-hmm. a teenager. Uh, I believe in the in the late nineteen uh, sixties. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what what's that sort of collaboration been like? Yeah, I mean Charles, it's such an honor and a privilege to be able to work with uh, Councilmember Barron. I mean he is a living example of an elected official that has been unbought or unbossed, but has also been punished for being unbought and unbossed, um, and is consistent in his values and in his beliefs and. Um, I think everything that he says is, is, is speaking truth to power. Um, you know, I think, uh, the powers that be are, are, um, you know, not happy with individuals that, that do navigate this political landscape in a way such as that one. But, um, I have the utmost respect for, for that man. Um, and it's, it's such a, a honor again to, to be able to be his colleague. Right. Now you're the chair of the cultural affairs and libraries uh, committee mm-hmm. and, and, uh, in our remaining time we have, I want to go into that a little further because uh, the libraries are being 
seriously targeted with uh, budget cuts in the mm-hmm. in the mayor's uh, uh, proposed budget, which uh, for mm-hmm. our listeners, uh, you know, the city council, the mayor, you all you'll will mm-hmm. ultimately resolve this in June. You have a June 30th deadline, so there's still ways to go, but uh, uh, libraries being uh, targeted, uh, can you talk about the, the kind of the scale of destruction that would occur uh, and uh, and why you feel like the libraries are worth defending? Absolutely. So I chaired a hearing with the libraries back in December. So like preliminary, preliminary, everything um, about the budget modification, how these cuts would affect the three library systems. And libraries are always one of the first targets when it comes to budget cuts. Um, and they have trimmed as much fat as they possibly could. Um, and now they're at, you know, the bone and any more cuts is going to affect staffing. Um, it's going to affect many of the amazing programs that they provide to our communities. Many people don't know this, but many of the migrants that are coming here because of the migrant crisis um, are coming to the library uh, for Wi-Fi, for, uh, you know, computer usage, for IDNYC. Uh, the libraries have always been, you know, there uh, during New York City's hardest times. You know, they've been there as vaccination sites, as COVID testing sites. Um, and now these cuts um, are one going to impact staffing. It's going to impact, uh, you know, uh, hours that the libraries can be open and it's going to impact the programs that they offer to the city. Um, I truly believe that libraries are, are a significant or play a significant role, uh, in, you know, the public safety here in, in New York City in terms of providing solace for both our, our, our young folks here in the city, as well as our new New Yorkers, um, including the migrants. And, you know, the, the systems have already, the three library systems have already said that they are, are, you know, they're at the bone in terms of, um, you know, cuts that have been made and any more cuts are significantly going to impact the three library systems of, uh, New York City. And again, I, I think these cuts are, um, if I'm not mistaken, under $40 million, you know, and, and when we, we look again at the lawsuits that are, uh, accumulating from the NYPD and, and the overtime, as well as overtime, as well as overtime. And we're um, and overtime that. going from four, like something like $450 million last mm-hmm. year, uh, on track for more than 800 million this year. And I can tell you, right. I, I, we've all seen the cops standing around scrolling their, mm-hmm. their cell phones or, mm-hmm. e- e- and you just kind of wonder like what is going on mm-hmm. here and why, why we have to uh, fork so much money out for this. Exactly, John. And I don't even consider this radicalism or any, I don't even want to throw any ideological ism on the fact that we are throwing our taxpayer dollars at overtime and at lawsuits in a time where the fiscal future of New York City is looking grim. This is common sense to me. And I'm really hoping that, you know, uh, my colleagues have the, the same um, outlook at, on this um, as, as I do, because uh, we're seeing the impacts that it's going to have uh, on our libraries, on our mental health care systems, as well as our public schools. Right. And, and going back to the to the libraries, do you have a sense that your uh, fellow city council members are ready to fight for the fight for the libraries? I mean, almost every council member would have a library in their district, I think. So mm-hmm. uh, do you feel like you're going to be able to marshal uh, sort of a united front here? So I'm, I'm, I, when we first saw those cuts, uh, during the budget mod, I, I did get a lot of outreach from, uh, many of my colleagues across, you know, the political 
political ideological spectrum in terms of how they were very uncomfortable with seeing these cuts. Um, and I'm hoping with, you know, uh, those feelings that they shared with me, as well as the advocacy campaigns that I'm going to be pushing with, you know, my partners in the library systems and DC 37, since many of their members are a part of that union, um, you know, we're going to do a lot of advocacy and pushing up against those cuts um, the closer we get to, uh, you know, these hearings, um, as well as the, the final vote on the budget. And is there anything our, our, our listening audience uh, can do to uh, impact uh, and, and support libraries? Sure. Yeah. I mean, keep your eyes out for when those rallies are happening. The more uh, folks that can show up and, and be loud with us, the better. Um, support your libraries. Go to your libraries. Um, be nice to your librarians. And, um, you know, I, I think uh, when the time comes, um, make sure your council members on the on the right page when it comes to being a, a champion and a fighter for libraries. Right. And we just have one more minute here. But talking about uh, council members being on the right side of things. Last year, the mayor successfully pushed an austerity budget with deep cuts, uh, more than 400 million in public schools, among other cuts. You were one of only six council members uh, who opposed that. Uh, for, uh, I believe 44 voted for it. Uh, can you quickly give us a sense uh, what happened and, and, and uh, this uh, sort of collapse of the progressive bloc in particular uh, happened three weeks out from the deadline. There, there was plenty of time to, to push back. But what what happened and wh- why do you think things will be differently this year? Have people uh, learned a lesson from last year? You know, I can only speak for myself, John. Um, but I, you clearly must have observed a lot. I mean, I have observed a lot, but, you know, I, I think I voted um, how I said I was going to vote when I, I, I ran for office and decided to run for office. And at the time, I just felt like the budget didn't give me, um, you know, the full picture of, of everything that was happening. Um, and, and that's why I voted in the way that I did. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure uh, or I'm hopeful that, you know, in this next budget, everyone votes in a way. Uh, where they think that they are creating the best city that that needs to be. Okay, well, we will leave it there. Uh, we thank you, Councilmember Chi Ose, for joining us, representing District uh, 36 in uh, Bed-Stuy in Northern Crown Heights, joining us uh, this evening on WBAI Radio. And with that, we'll be wrapping up uh, this week's Independent News Hour. One more time, that phone number to support the station, 212-209-2950, or give number 2 WBAI.org. I want to thank uh, Amber Gagarian uh, for helping with the, the show and also our board operator, Sean Rose. And we'll leave with this uh, song uh, uh, by Maluma called Yarab. <laughs> Thank you.